Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, what do you like to put in your witch's brew? Uh, a little a little frog leg. Yeah. Uh, rosemary. Yeah. Roasted garlic. Yeah. Of course. Um, a little crystallized ginger. Ooh, nice touch. Nice yeah. touch. Yeah. I highly recommend... Uh, Scale of Dragon, mm-hmm. Tooth of Wolf, mm-hmm. Witch's Mummy, Mongolf, uh, Of the Raven, Sea Salt Shark, Root of Hemlock, Digged in the Dark, of course. Of course. Uh, liver of a Blaspheming Jew, if you can get it. Mm. Uh, and Gall of Goat, Slips of You. And of course, uh, you want all the silvered in the moon's eclipse. That's just an old recipe that I picked up from. <laughs> You're uh, such a purist. Picked up from uh, Old Will there. but See, uh, I just get my stuff from Trader Joe's and, and you're all... Of the earth. The witch's aisle at Trader Joe's is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everything from your scale of dragon to, uh, you know, the eye of newt and, uh, baboon's blood. Yeah. They have excellent yeah. baboon's blood. Excellent uh, blood. you know, this, this is what I love about how stuff works is that we can discuss these things. We've got our own coven here and, uh, it really allows <laughs> us to exchange ideas about witchcraft. There's a coven at how stuff works. Yeah. Are you like seriously you or like were... literally there's a coven at how stuff works or are you just talking about we, Throw ideas into a cauldron. Oh no! Yeah, sure. Uh, it was just metaphorical. Okay. Yeah, okay. sure. Of course, <laughs> there's not a real coven. That would be weird. No, no, no. It's metaphorical. All right. Well, uh, really. Well, I, I would. I would imagine you're, you're. You must be meeting in a separate space because, as as we know from legends and mm-hmm. and myth and folk tales, the classic version of the witch and and by the classic version of the witch, I'm not craning this in on. Um, on, on Wiccan stuff, uh, like a, and, and modern right. witches, of, of whom I, I know some. My friend uh, Michelle is a practicing Wiccan, and to my knowledge, she does not have a cauldron. No, um, no. Today we're talking about the the witches that are, are burned in our witches, memories, yes. and of, sometimes yeah, at stakes. Twenty hats, yeah, stakes. <laughs> um, who, yeah, who have cauldrons? Who are meeting in the dark? Who are plotting against Macbeth? That are casting spells? That are hanging out with cats? That hate Dorothy. That hate Dorothy, mm-hmm. that are dying underneath the weight of houses that fall from the sky, uh, this sort of thing. The idea of the witch is pretty fascinating, especially when you get past sort of the the, the typical Halloween idea of just mm-hmm. cackling old crones. I mean, you could we could just talk for a long time about the um, about about what the witch represents, because as I've yeah. discussed before, I mean, the witch is basically a a monster. Uh, the hag, the hag especially, you see the hag as a monster or the ogress. Uh, appearing throughout different myth cycles where, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some of this is tied to the idea that some sort of cannibalistic, grotesque uh, old woman will come and eat your children if they don't behave. Right. Or that if you're not careful, guys, you might be seduced by what seems like a beautiful yeah. woman, but turns out to be a grotesque monster. Right. Then sort of the succubus thing too. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And then when you, and I mean, you also, in the witch, you have a, a, a situation where it's a woman with power. And of course that is a very yeah. interesting idea uh, throughout a predominantly male-dominated culture, where suddenly here here are women and they have power. And what mm-hmm. does this power mean? Is it a threat to uh, male dominance? And uh, I mean, I mean, make me stop because I could, I could, <laughs> I could keep going. <laughs> well, I was going to say that Erica Jong has an uh, interesting perspective on this from um, a historical context, and she has a book called Witchcraft and some poetry, some fiction, and some historical data in there. Yeah, a few spells in the back. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I hope so. I think that she actually sort of approached this book in that manner of yeah. like, wow, could I become a witch myself, even though um, she's someone who who I think is grounded in reality and, and knows that she wasn't necessarily going to start flying around. But anyway, um, she is the author of Fear of Flying. That's what she's best known of. 
as um, in her forward of the book, she says witchcraft in Europe and America is essentially this hearkening back to female divinity within a patriarchal culture. If you insist long enough that God is the father, a nostalgia for the mother goddess will be born. If you exclude women from church rites, they will practice their magic in the fields, in forests, in their own kitchens. The point is female power cannot be suppressed. It can only be driven underground. So this is how she places, which is really in a historical sense of, okay, what's actually happening here when we talk about witches, uh, when we get away from this idea of pointy hats and broomsticks, even though broomsticks certainly play into it, as we will find out. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the the necessary reemergence of the feminine deity. Because I'm reminded of a series of essays that I read, and uh, if I'd known that you were going to go in this direction, I would have I would have brought that book with me. I'll have to put something on the blogs about it. But uh, there there's some interesting material in there about uh, depictions of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. in medieval art, and in some of these depictions, Christ becomes more and more feminine, and you you actually have have varying, in some cases, outright heretical, and I'm doing quotes. Um, mm-hmm with air quotes in my fingers here, heretical I can um, that. Uh, ideas, or, or sometimes they're just sort of quasi-heretical, mm-hmm. where um, individuals end up worshiping a more female version of Christ, in the same way that there are female depictions of the Buddha. Okay, so this so, is sort yeah. of a, a uh, in an effort to unify, right? Right. To and bring both sides to to this doctrine. Right, and to focus more on feminine aspects, in this case, of, of Jesus, and mm-hmm. then to venerate those aspects as opposed to just uh, bleeding man-god on a tree mm-hmm. kind of a thing. It's a really fascinating subject because you get into whole, this whole interesting area of the, the wound of Christ. The, the spear wound and how this uh, spear wound is also kind of like a vagina. Oh, it's right. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I was, I it's fascinating stuff. There. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to be strong. That's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. The wound is like vagina. Yeah. Next time you see an image of Doubting Thomas, think about that. Um, <laughs> but moving on, uh, side tangent there, but back to witches. Um, you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Erica Jung, though, she does, she does explore the reasons why we have vilified, uh, witches throughout the ages. And one of the things that she says really interesting is that women have always been the, the bearers of life, right? Right. And we know historically women have been repressed on all sorts of different fronts. Uh, she also says that, that as women gain power, they begin to um, to sort of be tamped down. And if you ascribe witchness to someone or you put uh, power in the light of negativity, then what you're doing essentially is saying that not only is this person a life bringer, or a mm-hmm. life bearer, which is really powerful, but this person has the ability to bring death, right, through potions, magic, uh general dark shenanigans, right? Yeah. And if so, they're engaged in food preparation too. I mean that's right. food food can be the, the big life giver, but if it's if something's wrong with it, that if it uh, uh becomes toxic in some way, shape or form, if uh something goes off, if there's some sort of bacterial uh infection, then it's a, a killer as well. That's right. That's why you should always be kind to your server, right? Yeah. You never know what's going on in the kitchen. She might be a witch. Yep, she might be a witch or he might be, right? Yeah. A warlock. Uh, so it's, it's going to sound flip to say this, but, but all of a sudden you've, uh, you've got something like a broom, which, uh, um, becomes really important and almost like a very high tech object in the 13th century. Right. Which is interesting because I think the broom is something we often discount as that very Halloween idea of a witch. Like mm-hmm. you've got a, you know, there's like a, a, a kindergartner. Let's put a funny nose on her, paint her face green, give her a, a broom and she can start collecting candy. 
Right, striped tights. Right. There you go. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it is important to understand that this really was a, a, a prized object in yeah. the home. And we talk about the kitchen and who's preparing your food. We're also talking about the person who has, you know, usually elaborately braided broom, a cauldron, right, mm-hmm. that may have been passed down from generation to generation. And these objects start to really gain importance. Yeah, they are key uh, feminine cultural artifacts. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you start to think about a witch, you start to think about brooms, it would make sense that somehow they would factor into the image of a witch. But now you'll look at early typographs of witches and you'll often see uh, some depictions of witches uh, quite naked. Yeah. On top of a stride. Exceedingly naked. And that's another thing that, a broom, uh, that a broom. old Will Shakespeare. Um, well, no, I don't know if they were naked in the, if there's any reference to the naked in the text. I'm thinking of Roman Polanski's version of Macbeth. Which, uh, which, which was is, certainly naked. Which is awesome and, uh, and has some, some really naked old witches in it. Which yeah. Is, which I thought worked perfectly. But, you and know, calls back to these old uh, engravings and woodcuts where you see right. naked women flying around in the middle of the night, talking with goats, riding goats. Um, <laughs> You know, in, in engaging with the devil and in various ways, shapes and form. Right. It turns out there's something to this, right? If you scratch the surface a little bit, you'll find out that um, the broom actually figures pretty prominently in in witches work. And let's, let's just back up real quick. Um, yes, the broom is the ultimate symbol of domesticity. But if, in the hands of a witch, it can become this really potent symbol of liberation. Right. Right. And the more disenfranchised a person is, the more that they might turn to magical thinking to gain some sort of mastery over their situation. So let's look at it this way. Um, you know, maybe someone wasn't necessarily a self-proclaimed witch, mm-hmm. but perhaps they did uh, dabble back in the day, you know, when we're talking about this historical witch in you know, 13th century in ointments because it was important for healing and ritual and magical spells because this was a way to gain some sort of control over their lives. Right. But back to this broom. The broom. Yeah. There's kind of like two interesting uh, ways of looking at the power of the broom. One, which we'll discuss even more, is, the, of course, the magical thinking side of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole ointment situation. Ointment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which you think is a gross word, but. I do. and th- And now we're about to really sort of dive into the the fly and the ointment here and talk about uh something that's very interesting about the broom and the ointment. You want to you want to run with that? Okay, so there's this idea that witches they're flying around on broomsticks or they're flying around in a chair. But in many of these tales and uh, and accusations, they are rubbing an ointment on the broom or chair first. Mm-hmm. Which uh it's often glossed over. Generally when you it's not a part of the Halloween uh costume. (laughs) No. There's usually not a jar of ointment accompanying the costume. So they're taking this broom, they're coating it with uh, with some sort of mysterious ointment that they've brewed up, Mm -hmm. and then they're riding this this broomstick naked and just having a wonderful time doing it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously that brings to mind some some various scenarios that could be taking place. And there's actually some real, um, some people put some real thought into this and the idea that the ointment is in fact a drug or has has a pharmaceutical or or or, or psychedelic properties, mm-hmm. and they are interacting with the ointment uh, on the broom. Yeah, there are some pharmacologists who say, you know what, we think that this is actually what was happening is that these ointments were being made mm-hmm. and applied um, through the skin. Basically, applying a crazy pharmaceutical ointment to the genitals Thank with you. a broomstick. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In uh, fact, they probably said that on the side. Apply gently to broomstick. Then it ride did. broomstick uh, 
genitals first. In Gothic yeah. font. And this is from the investigation of Lady Alice Keitler in 1324. She was one of the first women to be accused of witchcraft in Ireland. We have this account, uh, quote, In rifling the closet of the lady, they found a pipe of ointment, wherewith she greased a staff, upon which she ambled and galloped through thick and thin. Okay. I mean, these are the actual documents that yeah. they're pulling some, some of this stuff from. And, and not that we put tremendous amount of stock in the prosecution's materials in witchcraft trials. I mean, they're. No, true. Take that with a whole lot of salt. But who, who knows? The, like the idea that there could be some shred of truth to this is, is fascinating. Okay. Dig a little deeper. And this is from the Journal of the American Society of Anesthesiologists in a paper they called The Legacy of Atropos, The Fate Who Cut the Thread of Life, which I think is really poetic yeah. for, for a journal. Um, in the paper, they describe a tome written by a 16th century Dutch physician, Johan uh, Weir, who concluded that a plant called henbane was a principal ingredient in witch's brew, along with deadly nightshade and mandrake. And according to Weir, there were other ointments, but the essential ingredients remained the same in all of them. In all the preparations, when they applied to the upper thighs or genitals, it was said to induce the sensation of rising into the air and flying. And by the way, it, uh, by applying this to their skin... And uh, rather than taking it orally, it was much more effective because then they didn't have to digest this and, and have obviously the sort of uh, stomach ailments that would accompany that. Right. So at some point they figured out that, hey, this is this is a pretty good way to get a high. Well, it kind of it's similar in, in a way to uh, the way uh, some uh, medications are applied uh, via suppository rather than uh, taken orally. Yeah. 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 And one of the dangers with suppositories, if you're taking some sort of illicit substance, is, of course, that you can't if you take take it orally, you can get you can become ill and vomit it back up. But uh, suppository, not so much. Yeah. And for the people that were studying these ointments, they weren't necessarily thinking that the that witches at that time were uh, applying them and then actually you know taking flight. They understood this to have hallucinatory properties. Back in the 16th century, uh, Francis Bacon even said, the witches themselves are imaginative and believe oftentimes they do that, which they do not, transforming themselves into other bodies, not by incantations or ceremonies, but by ointments and anointing themselves all over. Hmm. So they had sort of a, an inkling there that, uh, yes, they were transcending uh, the experience, but not in physical body. How not actually dare like, they get together and have transcendental uh, experiences and not invite the menfolk? I know. Um, and this is interesting, too. The use of soot, which is sort of alkaline, mm-hmm. would have enhanced the passage of organic bases because a weak alkaline environment would be sufficient to neutralize the positive ionic charge. This is, again, from that um, anesthesiologist journal. Uh, this is an effective ethnobotanical technique that may be seen with Peruvian cocoa chewers who mix in their mouths the cocaine containing leaves with alkaline cinders to enhance uptake. And this is, uh, and this is interesting and a, and a topic we'll probably go into in greater detail in a, in a future podcast. Mm-hmm. But this is by far not the only, would not be the only situation of individuals taking, uh, some sort of, uh, psychedelic uh, substance well, uh, as yeah. part of a, a ritual or or magical practice. Right. And you actually, don't you have an article on licking frogs? Or am I thinking of something else? I have a pamphlet. It was handed to me on a, by a guy on the train. Okay, but that, but that's... <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been very trepidatious about trying it out. There are some hallucinatory frogs that if you've licked... Uh, actually, I think it's maybe the... the uh, the venom or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they have that, that people can actually get high. So obviously through trial and error over thousands, thousands of years, people have figured out different properties in, in plants and animals 
and manipulated them. So it's not weird that someone would come up with an ointment. And it's not weird that this person, this female in the family, would um, be the person to come up with these ointments that are, mm-hmm. are you know, mostly healing, right? Right. And have a sort of power in their household, maybe even in their village as the go-to person that has all these great little recipes that can make you feel a lot better, uh, possibly make you feel as though you are riding a broom. And let's also talk about that broom. I, I hate to sort of bring it up, but again, you know, why not just the ointment? Why have the broom? Right. And I'm just going to point out that this perhaps was a uh, a, a proto-sexual aid back okay. in the day. So like an, a, I'm gonna say a ye old-timey sex toy, basically. Yeah. 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 Now, and uh, and I wonder if it, too if like a going back though from the from the side of of women liberated women engaging in a certain activity and looking uh, instead at um, really grumpy men deciding to crack down on this and persecute women. Right. Um, I wonder how much with the broom too. There's this idea of you have defiled and not only have you defiled yourself and your and your faith and and all, but you've also defiled this object which has. Um, Sympathetic, not sympathetic. Oh, yeah, sympathetic uh, importance in mm-hmm. the household and in the family, mm-hmm. and uh, and also as a symbol of, of of the status. And you've somehow perverted this uh, artifact. Well, also as we know, um, the understanding of female sexuality certainly wasn't that complex or nuanced back in the day. And, right. and some would argue that today it still yes. suffers. Uh, we, yeah, we just did the uh, podcast that dealt with the female orgasm. Yeah, and obviously. Yeah. Uh, we st- scientists are still figuring out exactly what sexu- human sexuality and uh, female sexuality is all about. Yeah, and so for a woman to express sexuality, certainly during uh, one period over mm-hmm. another, depending on what was happening in the 13th century as opposed to the 16th century, uh, there were certainly uh, iconic images and ideals to live up to. Yeah. Well, I'll put it that way. All right, so we discussed the ointment-based importance of flying around on broomsticks and so forth. Uh But after this break, we're going to really get into the idea of magical thinking and how that enforces uh, all these things that we're talking about. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, so we're back. Yeah, we've solved the broomstick uh, problem here. Yeah, and I want to add one more thing about the broomstick. I I, I couldn't help but be reminded of the Baba, the Baba Yaga, you know, the old Russian hag or witch or cannibalistic ogress, uh, you know, with the tusks for for teeth. If, if, oh yeah, that one. Yeah, uh, she also shows up in. Uh, there's a movie called Jack Frost, which uh, Mystery Science Theater uh, 3000 did years ago, and uh, it has the Baba Yaga in it. So she's a really iconic character in Russian myth. Uh, and she's a witch, and she, in addition to living in a uh, hut that walks around on hen's legs, uh, <laughs> she uh, also flies through the air, sometimes in an iron kettle, mm-hmm. and sometimes in a mortar and pestle, See? which, of course, is the uh, you know the, the device for crushing up yeah. um, various herbs uh, and what have you, and making them into powders mm-hmm. for use in ointments for use in uh, you know, and you go, go to the pharmacist today, and I mean that's the symbol of the craft. Yeah, again, here are these, these symbols of domesticity, right? right. That, that are being harnessed for, for powerful, uh, goings on with witches, which yeah. I think is really interesting and really plays into this idea of the law of contagion, which is one of the two laws of sympathetic magic. 
Yeah, sympathetic magic is this very old idea. The idea that if something, I think we've discussed this before. Okay, so I have a, a rubber dinosaur in my hand. All right. It's true, you do. And I have touched this rubber dinosaur, right? Yeah. And in touching it, I'm probably doing nothing more than getting some of my, my skin oil on it or uh, my fingerprints, what have you, ink uh, from my hands. My hands are really disgusting, aren't they? But, Oof. um, but, but then when I, when I set it down, the taint of my touch, that, mm-hmm. that'll be the extent of it. The idea of sympathetic magic is that there's, a, there's an even greater taint that is applied to this rubber dinosaur and that, and that I have somehow uh, imbued it with a, a sense of myself. You've transferred yourself to this object. Right. Yeah. And we continue to do this sort of thing today. I mean, I'm just dealing with my own stuff. I'm wearing my dad's watch mm-hmm. um, that he died in. I'm not a logical believer in sympathetic magic, mm-hmm. but... I am sympathetic towards this object and I have to a certain extent imbued it with a sense of him on some level, you know? So, I mean, we, yeah. we all do this kind of thing every day. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit in the science of lucky pants and, you know, how we ascribe meaning to, to things. And we think if, if I do this or if I take this, then, you know, something will happen. Or in the case of your father's watch, I mean, that's, that is for you a part of him. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that we're all sort of hardwired to, to have this sort of symbolism in our lives. Right. And I should mention, I explained the watch. I didn't explain why I have a rubber dinosaur in my hand. And uh, it's a like a squeeze toy that I use to keep from uh, fidgeting too much while recording a podcast. Just to explain that, why why I have a rubber dinosaur on my person. It's true. He squeezes yeah. the heck out of it. Yeah. And that's fine, right? Another idea that arises from uh, from sympathetic magic is like the idea that you can treat a weapon to treat the wound. Or somehow, like if you were to say cut somebody with a knife, and then you were to heat up that knife, mm-hmm. then the person would feel the burning of the wound. Things of that nature. Things that almost uh, what we would, uh, what a modern um, mind would think of as like a quantum entanglement yeah, between two objects. Yeah, I was just thinking objects, about that, yeah. Uh, exists within the confines of sympathetic magic. Yeah. Um, you know, things, objects becoming tainted, objects becoming haunted, objects made holy through contact with, a, you know, really important people. The whole, I'll never wash this hand again because... Right. His hand is coming to contact with Brad Pitt's face or something. Well, and, and if I believed in, uh, voodoo or sorcery, like I, I would probably, uh, take care to deposit my fingernail clippings in a way in which I didn't want someone else to get them, right? Yeah, yeah, to, that's to old use, magic too. Yeah, to use Hide it your fingernail me. Clip, clippings. Hide your hair because these are parts of you. Well, they, these are even more, like this is an even easier thing to buy, I think, because these were actually a part of me. Mm-hmm. These things were once my body. And now they are, you know, hidden away in the, the wall of the house, lest a sorcerer get a hold of it right. and use it to place a curse on me. Or to make a, a nail clipping sculpture of me right. and then uh, drive pins into me. Exactly. That's, that's my fear. <laughs> um, and, and real quick, It would only take 90 years of nail clippings. <laughs> and real quick, another, uh, another idea that's tied up, you mentioned voodoo. And, of course, that instantly brings to mind the idea of the voodoo doll. And, uh, and you see variations on this theme in in numerous magical um, and, and religious practices where you have a semblance of something. Mm-hmm. And if I like I can hurt the doll to hurt the, the person that the doll resembles or if I burn somebody in effigy, I am. Right. Uh, and, you know, this is something you see in everything from Guy Fox Day to uh, to Burning Man. Mm-hmm. You know, where an effigy is burned and by burning the effigy, you are on some level hurting the person or the idea or feeling or thing that it yeah. represents. Oh, we see this in political rallies all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this comes uh, down to something called the, the law of similarity, which uh, holds that um, humans inevitably link superficial real-life resemblances 
to deep, unreal resemblances. Okay, so I think about this in terms of the TED.com talk that you sent me. It's by uh, skeptic Michael Shermer. Ah. And he was talking about, uh, he was using examples of how we can't help to ascribe meaning or see patterns. And he brought up the case of the Virgin Mary visage on the grilled cheese. The Virgin Mary grilled cheese. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying that, you know, we've got this really uh, sort of grainy pattern recognition in our brains. And so we really respond well to like, you know, an image on tree bark or a burnt grilled cheese sandwich. All of a sudden, some of those grainy markings start to take form into an image. And I thought, well, that's really fascinating, particularly when he pointed out that if you really look at that grilled cheese sandwich, it looks more like Jane Russell than it does the Virgin Mary because she's got very pouty lips. (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, it comes down to the same reason we can just stare up into the sky at the clouds and just see one object after another. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a dragon using a typewriter. It's Laurel and Hardy making out on a steamboat, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, except for that last part. Well, I'm just saying you see random <laughs> things that, that may or may not make sense in the clouds. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, it depends on the per, the perceiver, right? Right. And we talked about this a little bit in Science of Lucky Pants, that some people may be more hardwired than others to see connections In a Sandra Hubscher article uh, about the dopamine connection, neurobiologist Peter Brugger found that people with high levels of dopamine are more likely to find significance and coincidences and pick out meaning and patterns where there are none. In one trial in which skeptics and paranormal believers were both given the drug L-DOPA, which, of course, (laughs) I I know, it sounds like a street, L-DOPA, increases dopamine levels in the brain, the skeptics began to perform much more like the believers. Yeah, you sent me an interesting paper that discussed some of the ideas about like what, what, how, why ritual is important. Mm-hmm. Like what is it, uh, what does it accomplish? And when we say ritual, I mean, on one hand, we could be talking about witches going out into the middle of nowhere on the Sabbath and, uh, and gathering together for dance or whatever. Right. Or you could be just talking about a local church coming together and engaging in song, just like a glee club engaging in song, you mm-hmm. know, different communal activities, a community service group coming together and picking up trash around a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that kind of thing can, under certain definitions, be seen as ritual. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, they are saying that these synch- synchrony rituals are really powerful and so much so that they may have endowed certain groups with a competitive advantage over the eon, perhaps even causing some cultures to flourish while others perish. That's from the article that uh, I thought, well, that, that makes sense why we would have these rituals that we participate in. And in that article, they even uh, brought up the observation that in modern day military, things like um, – Marching in formation or uh, muscular bonding, right? Muscular bonding, yeah. yeah. And uh, even uh, chanting or you know, the songs. I don't know what I've been told. Yeah. Th- yeah. That was that's just, the name that's, of that one, right? Yeah. I don't know what I've been told. Yeah. And I don't know the rest. Um, well, but, the rest varies depending on who's singing it, I think. Yeah. Something about mamas and boots. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Clearly, I have a, a vast knowledge of military uh Songs. But in in any case, what they were saying is that, you know, we still engage in these rituals, even though warfare is not conducted in, you know, here's one side in a formation of rows against another formation of rows that meet on a hilltop. Right. That that old school version of a very regimented forces meeting on a battlefield and it and marching into place, basically playing out like a tabletop game. Yeah, that just that does not exist anymore. It hasn't existed in a while. But a lot of these these activities still uh, exist because it builds this bond. Mm -hmm. It it builds this uh, 
this cohesive feeling that we are we are one. You know, it's I mean, it's that, like that I the idea you see in every boot camp movie ever that these guys enter as this ragtag group of uh, miscreants, and then they in the over the course of the boot camp they become a fighting force together. They become brothers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, through the experience, uh, they are are they're transformed into. This super group, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's interesting, uh, particularly in the context of magical thinking. And this was from an article, Do You Believe in Magic? And it was saying that that um, rituals and magical thinking give us a margin of control over the randomness in our lives. Um, this is from the article. It says, magical thinking is most evident precisely when people feel most helpless. Giori Kinen, a professor at Tel Aviv University, sent questionnaires to 174 Israelis after the Iraqi Scud missile attacks of 1991. Those who reported the highest level of stress were also the most likely to endorse magical beliefs, like, I have the feeling that the chances of being hit during a missile attack are greater if a person whose house was attacked is present in the sealed room. Or, to be on the safe side, it is best to step into the sealed room right foot first. Yeah, and I think sometimes it can come down to you're, you're faced with overwhelming odds or, or some sort of situation that you just cannot control. And it comes down to, what can I do? I can't actually stop this thing. Take the instance of, of death. When death comes, there's like nothing you can do to bring that person back. Right. But you can go and pray about it. You can go and light a candle about it. You can go and engage in various rituals, mm-hmm. even if that ritual is just something as simple as a, like a, a meditation type right. of thing. And it's something you can do. And so there's this feeling of I am doing something in the face of this uncontrollable force in my life. Well, and it, it's a. Uh... It's been brought up before, too, that ritual healing practices aren't uh, too far away from, like, the placebo effect. Right? right, right. Yeah. Like, if you if you engage in this thing, you take the sugar pill, then all of a sudden your body is going to respond as if it's actually being treated uh, very much the same in a, in a ritual uh, scenario. Another idea that came across in one of the links you sent me, and this comes from uh, Stanford University uh, psychologist uh, and graduate student Scott S. Viltermuth. And uh, the idea is that all this, uh, you know, this synchronicity, this uh, this movement and sound uh, in a communal ritual, um, it it really comes down to economic benefit. With the primary goal oh, yeah. of of being to spot the freeloader. Yes, to ferret out the person yeah. who's not really uh, contributing, really. Right, right. So it's kind of like, all right, we're all going to do a big giant square dance, and you can tell that the guy who's totally not into it is totally not into being a part of the group, mm-hmm. and therefore you can't. You can't uh, trust him as much, him or her. You can't trust them. You can't rely on them. You know that in the end, or you can suspect in the end, they're going to be looking out for number one rather than the whole right. of the group. They're not entering into the social contract. Right. Which I think is fascinating, right? I mean, yeah. this was particularly uh, important back in the days, uh, you know, obviously when uh, people got together in a more, mm, I don't know, how would you say, just a, a more formal way or more intentional way, right? right. Because if you lived two miles, five miles from another family, then you really had to make a concerted effort to get together socially. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us have been in situations where there's like some sort of a group activity that's happening with work Mm -hmm. and you maybe don't really want to go to it or you've got other things that need to be done, but you feel like you should. And and part of that is because, yeah, it's like the people who don't show up or the people who show up and are really obviously not into it. Mm -hmm. Can they be trusted? Are they really a part of the group or are they are they freeloaders? Well, and then also they're kind of wearing a little bit of jerk perfume. Yeah. You know, you don't want to look like a jerk. 
Yeah. Okay, so back to Erica Jung. Um, she, again, she talks about this in her foreword that ritual intention counts for everything. It must be positive. And the more witches there are sitting in a circle practicing communal intention, the more potency the magic will have. Okay, so that's the other part of it, right? Like, right. if you're particip- if not that person's not participating, then they're weakening what the group effort is. The desire for magic cannot be eradicated. Even the most supposedly rational people attempt to practice magic in love and war. We simultaneously possess the most primitive of brain stems and the most sophisticated of cortexes. The imperatives of each coexist uneasily. Huh. Uh, that reminds, reminds me a little bit of this bit that I ran across in this book, The Faust Myth, uh, Religion and the Rise of Representation by David Hawks. And uh, he points out that magical thinking First and foremost, it makes perfect sense in, to borrow a phrase from William Manchester, a world lit only by fire. If you live in a world with a lot of, a lot of magical beliefs, mm-hmm. it pays to believe in magic because that is the, the currency um, of, of ideas. Of ideas. Yeah. yeah. All right. But by the uh, 18th century, most modern Europeans are convinced that magic doesn't exist anymore. And, and you see wiz- witches and wizards and warlocks, you see them prosecuted not as blaspheming monsters or dangerous idea uh, dealers, but rather as charlatans and frauds, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the colonies. And then um, Hawks points out, and I'm going to read a, a quotation here. He says, by the end of the 20th century, however, this process of enlightenment had been subjected to such cogent philosophical and political critiques that few people would endorse it unequivocally. We are much more conscious than our forebears of the complicity between reason and magic. Uh, and many would argue that the postmodern era, with its virtual reality, its faith in the image, its electronic money, its new age religions, is witnessing a return to the kinds of overtly magical thinking that imperialism unsuccessfully tried to stomp out in the southern hemisphere. Huh. Which I, I found really interesting. Because indeed, there are all these, I, like electronic money is this unreal thing. I mean, the Internet itself is kind of this, you know... Where is the Internet, right? Well, I guess it depends quite a bit on our ability to think magically, right, to think metaphorically. So perhaps that's the reason why it hasn't been um, done away with by evolution, right? Because there are some people who say, why why do we even have magical thinking anymore when we have the ability, even as tiny babies, to innately understand physics or math or language and what is real and what is not real? Um, You know, kids by the age of six or seven have a really great idea of what is real and they usually uh let you know santa claus or easter bunny or anything else all those myths fall away that being said why do we keep holding on to it and perhaps that's a reason why well uh, one, one more thing about uh about uh, all this before we, we close out the podcast and that's what uh, we were talking about uh witches meeting for these sabbaths and i i keep running across the image by francesca de goya uh the witch's sabbath and the great he goat Mm-hmm. Which is this this lovely uh, image? I mean, Goya's Goya was awesome, and so it's all these women, and they're 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 arranged in like a big semicircle mm-hmm. uh, around this like speaker, a harem. like a harem, yeah. And there's somebody playing the accordion, which I thought was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. There with presumably Satan, the great he goat, this sort of goat figure, and in, and in many of the old woodcuts, I love looking at old woodcuts of of witches and and, and warlocks and and all that. And the goat is often depicted as really really raunchy and gross and uh you know he's he's really deplorable looking and it's like oh they're these women are gathering to to worship and lay with the horned one and he's so gross and vile and but in in this image the the great he goat has seems to um 
inspire some of the more uh, sympathetic aspects of like of of a goat for starters and also this kind of he seems like a wise old man and these ladies are i can't really judge him for going on here and what he has to say that's a goat that looks like has wisdom yeah no i think that's an interesting take but i still prefer the the like um the the red-hued beast as depicted in south park Oh, and and uh, who was very much in, in touch with his feelings, yeah. by the way. And and you, I think you like uh, the one from Legend, right? The I one do. From Curry. I do. I'm kind of partial to the one Ernest Borgnine played in The Devil's Reign, mm. which had a cameo by Anton Lavey of the Church of Satan. But uh, Ernest Borgnine turns into this man goat uh, creature, and it's pretty awesome. I I just can't imagine Ernest Borgnine as Satan. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, real quick, this was a Halloween episode. We didn't, you didn't explain your costume. Oh well, because you're supposed to intuit what it is. You're a witch. Yes. Ah, excellent. Sheesh. Yeah. Should have brought a broom. Yeah, you, yeah, broom would have been good. Yeah. Yeah, and I, of course, am uh, am dressed as the great he goat. Uh, thus, the goatee and the horns. I got that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And these filthy hands. Ugh. But uh, anyway, and you look very wise, by the way. Uh, well, well yeah. thank you. I would prefer to be the wise he goat than the just deplorable wretched he goat. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for not painting your body in red. Oh uh, yeah, thing. yeah. Yeah, I didn't get up in time this morning. You know how it is. Well, let me reach into the cauldron of listeners' mail and poke around amongst the, the embers, the embers, and the thoughts. the wolf teeth, and the and the the mummy wrappings and sea shark eggs. And uh, let me see what we have to read. First of all, we uh, heard from our listener Ian on Facebook. And he was responding to our recent episode about the uh, orgasm wars, evolution of the uh, the orgasm. And he says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Uh, not to get too nitpicky, but sexual health, uh, this is a subject that I have a great interest in. And I feel it necessary to report on a couple of errors in this episode. First, and I think most importantly, you repeatedly stated the male orgasm is required for pregnancy. This isn't entirely true. The pre-seminal fluid that is produced by the male organ for lubrication also contains enough sperm to cause a pregnancy. Thus, the reason that the pull-out method of birth control is not reliable. Unfortunately, this misconception is all too often repeated, and in this day and age of teen pregnancy, people really need to know that male orgasm does not need to occur to cause pregnancy. And then uh, he initially forgets his second thing, but then he uh, points out that um, clitoris is acceptable uh, pronounced either way. So Clitoris or yeah, clitoris? You, you said clitoris. I said clitoris. I, and I said let's call the I, whole thing off. <laughs> I freaked out and thought that I was saying it wrong and thought that clitoris sounded like a wizard's name. Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. you could say clitoris. It, to me, though, that sounds like a great aunt clitoris or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, there could be a gradient of Taurus. But back to Ian's first point about the presence of sperm and pre-seminal fluid. Um, looking around, it looks like there are different studies that go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some that are saying, yeah, there's definitely, uh, in some cases, uh, sperm in this fluid. Um, other other instances, you see people saying, oh, it's almost never there. So, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of literature either, either way. Yeah. Certainly, it would uh, behoove one to... Uh, to be careful. To be, to, yes, to, yeah. to take caution. In fact, there's a Scrubs episode, I believe. That, is it called, is his name John? The, the main character, um, he impregnates his girlfriend without actually having sex with her, uh, based on what you just described there. Ah, okay. And I'm not going to go into detail, but. No spoilers, yeah. right? No. Okay. And we also heard from our listener Thor from Sweden. We, even if he didn't have anything to say, I would have to. I have to mention yeah. that we have a listener named Thor in Sweden. Just pretty awesome. Yeah. And he says, uh, hey, guys, uh, so I just listened to the podcast on lies. An idea struck me when you were talking about uh, the aliens who couldn't lie. And I, I think I may have been referring to uh, China Mielville's, uh 
embassy town. And that he says, if you can't lie, are you then all knowing? Uh, example: Someone asks you, what are the first fifteen decimals of pi? You start by saying, well, three point one four one five. Um, um, if you can't lie, you have to keep going. So, does the inability to lie make you know the fifteen decimals? Maybe a bad example, but you get the idea. Another thing: if you were told uh, when you were a kid that watching TV too close makes your your eyes square, and nobody's ever told you that it isn't true, is saying it then a lie? Thanks for a lot of very interesting stuff. Smiley face, love from Sweden, Thor. All right, yeah, I don't think that that uh, if you've not been disabused from the idea, then I don't think that it's lying. Right. Yeah. What it, it instantly makes me think of too is we discussed this in uh, the False Memory podcast. It's about how. You can you can have a memory that is false, mm-hmm. and you saying it you think it's true, but on a deeper cognitive level, uh, brain scans reveal that you might know the brain may know that you are lying, and I, I find that and that's just a, a, I just find that an interesting idea, especially in relation to this, the idea that even as we if yeah. we believe something, it doesn't mean that. We believe it in the deeper levels of the brain. Um, I also think it's fascinating that in Sweden, perhaps maybe this is a cultural thing, that the the myth is that if you sit too close to the TV, your eyes will turn into squares. As opposed to in the United States, if you sit too close to the TV, you will go blind. Oh, I didn't notice. Uh, yeah, I guess I. That's the thing. I read this, and I was just instantly thinking about our idea. Make your eyes square. Just some square eyed. What is square eyed? I don't. Maybe turn your round eyes into like the the actual uh, into actual squares. The iris into squares, huh. which would be kind of cool. Huh. We, we may have lost something in translation there, but anyway, I love getting e- uh, email that says "love from Sweden, Thor." So hopefully, yeah. we'll, <laughs> hopefully we'll get more of that from other people with uh, with even if you don't live in Sweden. Names. Yes. Yeah. So, if you would like to share some ideas with us, if you would like uh, to provide feedback on a podcast episode, present ideas for future uh, episodes, you can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter. And on both of those, we go by the moniker "Below the Mind," and or, or and also you can just search for stuff to blow your mind. Facebook, Twitter, and you'll probably find us. And you can always drop us a line at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.